You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. How does Dr. Luke end his gospel, the gospel of Luke? One of the very last sentences in the very long book of Luke is this. He, Jesus, parted from them and was carried up into heaven. It's one of the closing comments. He parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And if you read that, you think, well, that's a wrap. (laughs) That's the end of the story. Jesus left. He went back to heaven. But as some of you know, Dr. Luke wrote another book of the Bible. He wrote not only the gospel that bears his name, but he wrote what other book of the Bible? The book of Acts. Do you know how he begins volume two? Do you know how he begins the book of Acts? This is the very first sentence. This is how the book of Acts opens. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Did did you catch that? Luke says, that first book I wrote, the Gospel of Luke, I was just telling you in that book, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Are you like me? Does that just kind of make you lean in? Does that just stir your curiosity? Like all that he began to do and teach? So what's Jesus doing now? What sort of ministry did Jesus have now that he's ascended to heaven? We're going to do something a little bit unusual today, uh, at least for me as one of your preachers, and, and that is we're going to do more of a topical study, and we're going to go to so many different parts of the Bible that we're going to put most of them up on the screen, because I don't think any of us are fast enough to get to all these unless we extend our worship service into the afternoon, and I remember it's Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> so why don't you join me in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. After the resurrection, Jesus continued to appear physically here on the earth for how long? Another 40 days. And then he went back up to heaven. He went back up to heaven physically, bodily, in the presence of quite a few witnesses. We're acknowledging today as Ascension Sunday, a day that, unless you're from a more liturgical church, you probably never thought of before. (laughs) In most evangelical churches, Ascension Sunday doesn't necessarily appear on their annual calendar. But... Pastor Mark's wise counsel was that today, let's remember Ascension Sunday. What Ascension Sunday really commemorates is the exaltation of Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. Have you found Acts chapter 1? You follow along now. As I read aloud, I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Acts 1. This is the word of God spoken by the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It is plain from the scriptures that Jesus rose from the earth to heaven in a bodily form. He was observed in that transfer by many witnesses. As I think about this subject of the ascension of Christ and what is the ascended Christ doing now, I was thinking, you know, a lot of Christians, I want to say most Christians, most Christians highly value the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. They highly value the resurrection of Christ from the grave and probably have a fairly foundational understanding of why those are important. I would guess that most Christians have a basic valuing and understanding of the return of Christ. That Jesus Christ is coming back someday. And no matter what your understanding of the future is, I think Christians are united in the reality that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there will be a great resurrection from the dead. And the curse that was put on this whole universe when Adam and Eve sinned will be lifted on that day. And all the wrongs will be made right. We look forward to that. We value that. But how many Christians, I wonder, how many Christians have explored what's happening with Jesus in this era between his ascension and his return? I've never heard anyone say this, but I wonder how many Christians have this kind of default understanding that Jesus must be in some sort of retirement. You know, maybe he went back to heaven and he's just kind of in a retirement mode. You know, maybe he'll pick up his work again when he comes back one day, but right now. and Well, maybe we ought to think of it kind of like a sabbatical, you know, that Jesus was working really hard here on the earth. He was preaching the gospel, living out the will of his Father, doing miracles. He died for us. He rose again. And now he's up in heaven kind of on a spiritual sabbatical, you know, until, until he comes back someday. What we're going to find out today as we study the Bible together is that Jesus is not retired and Jesus is not on some sort of sabbatical. Jesus is very actively involved in service and ministry even now as the ascended Christ in heaven, as the exalted Christ in heaven. Not only that, but let me be more particular. Jesus Christ is not only right now, currently, intentionally active in ministry, But he is currently very active in ministry on our behalf. He is serving us as his people. He is ministering to us as the church right now. While you're sitting in those chairs, Jesus Christ is serving you. He's serving us as the church. So what's he doing? What's Jesus doing now? 
I told my wife as I was preparing this sermon, this, this sermon is a little harder for me than some. <laughs> Not because I don't enjoy the topic, I was fascinated. But I tend to take a passage and just kind of open it up and explain it. And today we're going to do more of a topical series, a topical sermon, excuse me. And as I was working through this question of what is Jesus doing now, I started making this really long list. And as I worked on my long list, I realized, you know what, I'm never going to remember everything. I'm not going to remember everything on this list. And, and some of you have better memories than I. Probably a lot of you have better memories than I. But if you're like me, if you have really long lists, it's hard to remember. And so as I was working on this question of what is Jesus doing now, I began to remember something that's been valued in church history that for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, theologians and preachers have talked about Jesus' ministry under three glorious titles. They've thought of Jesus and taught about Jesus under these titles. Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he's king. Those are all very prominent titles in the Old Testament. And we can think of prominent prophets, prominent priests, and prominent kings. Jesus Christ is the one to whom all of those pointed. He is the fulfillment of all of those. And even now, the ascended Christ, the ascended Christ in heaven, is not on sabbatical. He is very actively, very intentionally serving us as the church. He's serving us as our prophet, our priest, and our king. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And if I could be so bold to ask this next question, so what? What difference does it make that Jesus is right now our prophet, our priest, and our king? Let's find out. Let's study the Bible together. What does it mean when we say the ascended Christ continues to serve as the prophet? What's the primary ministry of a prophet? If if an eight-year-old asks you, What's a prophet? What's a prophet do? How would would you answer that to an eight-year-old? This would be my answer. A prophet is someone who speaks to the people on behalf of God. Now, we could put more color into that portrait, but I think that's the essence. A prophet is someone who speaks to the people on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, we can think of a lot of examples. Some are fairly well known. People like Ezekiel and Amos. Some lesser known, maybe like Nahum or or Obadiah. And then there's Moses. Moses. You know, Moses said one prophecy that was particularly significant for our subject today. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you will listen. The reason I found that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 so significant is that the Holy Spirit moved Peter to apply that to Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, as Peter was preaching, he took that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 and refers to Jesus Christ. You know, if we think through Jesus' three years here on this earth, his three public years of ministry, Uh, Lots of people thought he was prophet. Lots of people. People that didn't even believe him to be the son of God thought of him as a prophet. People would see some amazing things he did. You know, he did this miracle or he did that miracle. And people say, I see that we have a prophet among us. 
Now, while it is insufficient to say that Jesus is merely a prophet, that does not take away the truth that he was a prophet. Jesus was more than a prophet, but he was a prophet. He came to speak to the people on behalf of God. We just a couple of weeks ago finished a long series here at CCC on the Gospel of John. Some of you were here on that glorious journey. (laughs) How does John begin his Gospel? Some of you remember. In the beginning was the, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't that fascinating that John begins his Gospel by referring to Jesus Christ as the Word? He's telling us something about Jesus and a particular ministry he had. In fact, a little bit later in that first chapter, he said this. um, No one has ever seen God. And he makes an exception. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There are a number of reasons why Jesus left heaven to come to this earth, this fallen planet of ours. But one of them was, one of the reasons Jesus came was to show us the Father. He came to speak to us on behalf of the Father. He came to tell us the will, the word of God. And you know, if you move ahead three years in Jesus' public ministry, the night before the cross, as Jesus was praying and his men were welcomingly eavesdropping, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. Jesus is saying, I came to declare you to the people. I came to be your spokesman to these people. And now that he's at the end of his earthly ministry, he's saying, I fulfilled that. I have told them about you. I have manifested your name. So one important dynamic of Jesus' public ministry during those three years was to speak to us, the people, on behalf of God. (coughs) But we're asking the question, a more narrow question, what's Jesus doing now? If we say, well, Jesus is God's spokesman now, what does that mean now? Fascinating passage. I would encourage you to get a good study Bible and sit down and open up the book of Hebrews and slowly read and then reread the opening comments. In fact, let's read them now. Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. The author of Hebrews said this as he began his sermon letter. He said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Emphasis. Whom He appointed the as appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation, imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the author of Hebrews is wanting us to know, as he begins this sermon letter, he's wanting us to know a significant thing about Jesus Christ. He is God's ultimate spokesman. He is God's ultimate prophet. You know, one of the things that's true about this room that we're meeting in, and some of you have noticed it, it has no exterior windows, does it? Uh, the, the classrooms and lobbies surround this room. This room has no exterior windows. So if we blocked out the little windows on the door and shut all the lights off, you know what? This would be a pretty dark room. <laughs> I've been in here when it's really dark. 
and stumbled around, walked, you know, with my hand along the wall to make sure I'm not falling. This would be a really dark room. Well, what if you had never been in this room? Someone led you by the hand into this dark room and, and didn't tell you much of anything. And you wondered, where am I? What, what's in this room? And the person said, oh, I got a flashlight. Hold on. And takes that flashlight and flicks it on for two seconds and turns it back off. And in those two seconds, you looked around and you saw something. And then some time goes on and someone else comes into the room and, and he flicks on a flashlight for two or three seconds and you look and you see something else. And then maybe a third person comes and flicks on a flashlight for a few seconds and, and you look around and, and you see something additional. You know, each one of those flashes of light where you're enabled to see something is a gift. Every one of those is precious. You were allowed to see something that you wouldn't have seen if they didn't flick on that flashlight for a few seconds. And then someone comes in and does what? Hits all the switches. Hits all the switches at once. And all of a sudden, boom, this room is filled with light. And you look around and you say, oh, that's where I am. Well, that's kind of the picture here in the opening verses of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says, back in the Old Testament days, God would flick on the light now and then. He'd, he'd take a prophet and he'd, he'd flick on the light for a little bit. And, and every time the light got flicked on, at various times and in various ways, each one of those was a blessing from God. But they were flickers. They, they were flickers of light. But now what's God done? What's God done now? He's spoken to us in the very person of His Son. Jesus Christ is God, the Son. He's the exact image of His Father, the radiance of His glory. So that when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to show you the Father, He can say with integrity, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. No other prophet, no other prophet could ever come close to saying that in the past. That Jesus Christ came and He is God's ultimate prophet. He is God's ultimate spokesman. You know what? He's still doing that. Jesus Christ sent His Holy Spirit, and His Holy Spirit came and did what? Let me read to you from John 16. In John 16, the night before the cross, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Friends, that's how we got our New Testament. That Jesus Christ prompts His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, to remind the apostolic writers what they heard from Jesus, what they saw from Jesus. The Holy Spirit gave them new insight into the meaning of what Jesus said, into the meaning of what Jesus did. Jesus continues to speak. So what difference does that make? What difference does that make that Jesus is right now God's ultimate prophet, ultimate spokesman? What difference does that make to you as a Christian? What difference does that make to us as a church? Jesus communicates. Jesus the prophet communicates through His Holy Spirit. And because the ultimate prophet communicates, He's speaking, we listen. That we must listen to Him. It is important that we listen to Jesus Christ. It's important that we listen to His Word. 
when several of the apostles saw the glorified Jesus, God spoke from heaven when they saw him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And you know what? We need to hear that as well, don't we? This is my Son. This is the exact representation of my being. When Jesus speaks, listen. And here we are today, 2,000 years later after Jesus ascended, and our ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, communicates through His Word. And we listen. And we obey. Jesus said, if you love Me, you will obey My commandments. I've had the privilege of preaching God's Word now for about 40 years, and, and I have so many things to be thankful for. I'm so glad to be part of this church. But one thing I've noticed as a preacher over the years is how there is an increasing biblical illiteracy, uh, an increasing biblical ignorance, and I'm speaking not at TCC so much as the evangelical church worldwide, that the Word of God isn't valued like I think it should be, that people aren't taking time to, to listen Listen and obey. And not listening and obeying the Word of God has disastrous consequences. Gladine and I have the joy in the summertime of getting all of our grandkids together in our home for five or six days for what we've called Grand Camp. <laughs> and the grandkids have been asking us now for months, <laughs> when's the next Grand Camp? When are we going to have Grand Camp? And uh, we do a variety of lessons. We always have a theme. One year it was a parable, one year it was a proverb. Uh, but we have a theme for the week, and then we do a variety of activities. But, you know, in talking to the grandkids, uh, one of their favorite activities of Grand Camp, and one they've already asked to do again, is the obstacle course. <laughs> now, let me just briefly tell you about the Grand Camp obstacle course. The grandkids are allowed to set up in our backyard an obstacle course. And then, after they've got it all set up, each of the grandkids, in turn, is blindfolded. And that's to start at the beginning. And then to make his or her way through the obstacle course, that grandchild has to listen to the voice of wisdom. Guess who that is? That's Papa. <laughs> that I get to be the voice of wisdom. And so, I might be saying to that grandchild, go straight, step high. And meanwhile, the other grandkids, their assignment is to try to distract. And so while I'm speaking, go straight. The other grandkids might be on, no, turn left, turn left, turn left. And so, you know, here's like a seven-year-old grandchild thinking, which way do I go? Listen to the voice of wisdom. Listen to the voice of wisdom. Go straight. Get low. Go under. Step over. Meanwhile, this cacophony of voices from their siblings and cousins saying, no, go this way. No, go that way. But to make it through the obstacle course, they have to listen and obey. They need to listen to the voice of wisdom. Now, you understand why we do the obstacle course every year at Grand Camp, don't you? We want to teach our grandkids something. One of the most important things we can do is listen to Jesus Christ. Listen to His Word. Obey His Word. This world that we live in is like an obstacle course. It has all kinds of pitfalls and, and dangers. And the world's going to call on you. Turn left! 
Mama hears. And Jesus Christ says, follow me. Follow me. We want our grandchildren to have new hearts. We want them to have new ears. That they hear the voice of Christ. To guide them through the obstacle course of this world. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet. He communicates. He communicates. And therefore we as individual Christians and we as a church must listen. We must listen. And we must obey. But secondly, Jesus, the ascended Christ, continues to serve as our priest. What is the primary responsibility, the primary ministry of a priest? The prophet's primary ministry is to speak from God to the people. What's one of the priest's primary responsibilities? You know, you could look for definitions, but I find it fascinating that the book of Hebrews gives us a definition. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, the author says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so the author of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit's direction, gives us the description, the job description of a priest. The high priest is to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So it's kind of the other direction, isn't it? So the prophet speaks from God to the people. A priest speaks to God from the people. The priest had to deal with people's guilt and shame. How is Jesus a priest? How is Jesus a high priest? Well, friends, that's a major theme in the book of Hebrews. So if you haven't read the book of Hebrews for a while and you're curious about this subject, the Spirit's stirring your heart to know more, read it slowly. <laughs> read, read the book of Hebrews and, and weep tears of joy. God's given us such a high priest. How should we consider Jesus as a priest? Let me read some of these. Hebrews 9.24 Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. A little bit earlier in that same chapter, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So when we read those passages in Hebrews 9, it sounds like, well, Jesus was a high priest but it was punctiliar. It, it was at a particular point. It, it was once for all. Praise God. That the sacrifice of Jesus Christ never needs to be repeated. It was sufficient. He secured eternal redemption. He obtained it. And yet, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ didn't end at that point when he died on the cross for our sins. He's still a high priest. How is Jesus a high priest now? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's quoting from Psalm 110, one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Psalm 110. It's interesting you find that very same verse repeated in other places. Hebrews 7, 24. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus' priesthood didn't come to an end. In the Old Testament, every priest's ministry came to an end. Do you know when the priest's ministry came to an end in the Old Testament? When he died. And they all did. They all died. 
But see, Jesus Christ lives forever. He rose again, never to die again. So the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ has no expiration date. It, it never ends because he lives forevermore. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 8, verse 1, this is so encouraging, friends. Listen carefully. The point of what we're saying is this. We have, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. By the way, I can't get distracted with this, but I love the imagery of the seated high priest. If you ever studied the tabernacle in the Old Testament or even the temple that succeeded it, um, how many chairs were in the tabernacle? Any of you remember? There weren't any. There, there were never chairs in the tabernacle. There were never chairs in the temple. Do you know why? The priests were never done. They were never done. Oh, don't you appreciate after a long day being able to go home and sit down? The priests never sat down in the tabernacle. They never sat down in the temple because the work was never done. The shift might be done, but someone else would come in and would keep killing animals and keep offering sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats can never finally deal with the sin issue. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, he offered himself once for all, and he sat down. Such a simple picture, but so profound, so, so glorious, so heartwarming, so assuring, so invigorating. That we have a, a seated high priest. Did it. Did it. He obtained eternal redemption. And he sat down. But his office of priest continues on. My Christian friends. My Christian friends. How do you know? How do you know? When you stand before God in judgment day. You will hear his words of pardon. Some of you wrestle with us. I know you do. How do you know he won't change his mind? How do you know that he will say, enter into your master's happiness? Well, what assurance do you have? Is your assurance based on how good you've been? Is your assurance based on good intentions? Well, I promised him I'd do my best. Is your assurance based on the sincerity that you had in your heart when you prayed the sinner's prayer? My friends, none of those, none of those is sufficient assurance. But Jesus Christ, when you, when you and I stand before the judgment seat and we see at the right hand of God none other than our seated high priest who shed his blood to redeem us, my assurance, your assurance, isn't in you. It isn't in me. It's in Him. That He's done it. He's accomplished, obtained my salvation, my redemption. And when I see Him there, I know I will be owned by God. That's my assurance. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's a priestly function. He's interceding for us. And then he says a little bit later, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then Paul writes, for I am sure. I am sure 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, in case I missed anything, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My Christian friends, your assurance of being pardoned on that day rests entirely, fully, in Jesus Christ, our High Priest. So Jesus serves currently as our High Priest objectively and making us acceptable to God positionally, that God looks at His Son and He pardons us. But there's a subjective side to that as well. And this maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but there's a subjective side to it all as well. Jesus, our high priest, ministers to us subjectively, lifting shame off our conscience. The author of Hebrews said in chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Or as John would write in his first letter, if anyone does sin, and we all do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When I was thinking about that, my mind went to an old hymn. It it might have some weaknesses here and there theologically, but it has a lot of good truths in it too. It's a Wesley hymn. And Mr. Wesley wrote this, Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They they strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. And is the Father reluctant? Is God the Father sitting on His throne with His arms crossed, leaning back, saying, Why should I believe you, son? Why should I pardon that guilty sinner just because you're asking me? Is the Father reluctant? Mr. Wesley got this right. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one is Christ. He cannot turn away the presence of His Son. The Spirit answers to the blood. The Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I'm born of God. My God has reconciled His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, Christ. Do you see it, my friends? If we don't value Christ, if we don't see Christ as our priest who's redeemed us objectively and also lifted the shame off of our guilty souls, then what we're going to do is we're going to cower. We're going to shy away. And God says, Come on in. Come into my throne room. I, I want to fellowship with you. I, I, want to, I want you to see my glory. I want you to be here in my presence. And we say, oh, you don't want the likes of me around. You don't want me in there. And so we stay away. But the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Oh, you weren't good enough. You weren't good enough. If you feel like you're not good enough, well, That's right, you're not. It's worse than you imagined. But Jesus Christ, the worthy worthy one died in your stead, in your place. And as the one who died in your place, He has made you both objectively and subjectively free to come in. 
But we don't stay away from God the Father. We enter in with, oh yes, with tears of gratitude, with astonishment that He would shed His own Son's blood on our behalf. But we enter in. We enter in because Jesus is the High Priest. Jesus is the Prophet and therefore we listen and obey. And because Jesus is our Priest, we are assured and we draw near. And so briefly, thirdly, how is the ascended Christ serving as King? What's the ministry of a King? Pick two words. Kings protect and kings provide. Kings protect and kings provide. Why should we see Jesus as a king? Well, 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 700 years before, God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and he said, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And then it continues of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. I quoted Psalm 110 a little while ago. It says at the beginning sentence of that psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies your footstool. Also applied to Christ. Jesus Christ is the king. How is he serving as king now? How is Jesus Christ our king now? King Jesus. I I talk to Christians sometimes. They talk about the kingdom of God as if somehow it's exclusively in the future. You know, someday Jesus will come back and he'll inaugurate his kingdom. We're just kind of waiting that someday. Now, there's a whole lot yet to experience in his kingdom that we haven't experienced yet. I totally acknowledge that. But friends, Jesus isn't waiting to be king. He is king. He's king right now. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1, that opening chapter, the author says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, o, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus Christ is King now. Well, I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, glorious prayer of the Apostle Paul for us. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Jesus Christ is currently serving as king. He protects. He provides. Help me out with this. We'll we'll do this briefly. But what is Jesus protecting us from? Christians, what is Jesus protecting us from? There's more than one answer. Satan. He's protecting us from Satan. Lead us not into temptation. Protect us. Keep the evil one away. Damnation, thank you, brother. Sin, let me come back to that one. Damnation, the wrath of God. Jesus Christ protected us from the righteous wrath of God. You and I deserve to be punished in hell because of our sin. We all deserve that. And yet when Jesus came 
and died on that cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking our hell upon himself. It wasn't that he was deflecting God's wrath. It was that he was absorbing God's wrath. That as Jesus hung on that cross, he was absorbing the wrath of God that you and I earned. He did not earn a single gram of his Father's wrath. Not a gram. He had never sinned. And yet when he hung on that cross, he was absorbing the Father's wrath toward every sinner from all the ages from all around the world. He's protecting us from the Father's wrath. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Literally gave himself over for her. He handed himself over to God the judge's righteous wrath. Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Jesus as the king protects us as the members of his kingdom. We're transferred into his kingdom. He protects us. You and I as Christians don't need to fear the Father's wrath. He protects us from Satan. <coughs> he protects us from, from sin dominating our lives. We've been freed from our old taskmasters. How does he serve us in providing? Kings provide for their people. Um, what has Jesus provided for us? And again, there's a lot of answers to this question. Just help me out here. What are some of the things King Jesus provides for us as his church? He provides... Oh, there's all kinds of things. Yeah, grace, sanctification. A Holy Spirit, he gives us his spirit. That's dominant in so much scripture, by the way. He gives us the church. Jesus said, I, I will build my church. Gates of hell won't prevail against it. Interesting, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says he gives leaders to the church. He gives pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, evangelists. He gives leaders to the church. He gives the gifts of the Spirit. He gives us an eternal home. Remember that night before Jesus went to the cross? He said to his men, this is John chapter 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. That I, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. While you and I are here today, Jesus Christ has prepared or is preparing a place for us. In glory. And if you go through days that are particularly difficult, and you do, and you will, I would encourage you to turn to the end of your Bible and read Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Those are the last two chapters in the Bible. But there's a declaration from God in Revelation 21 that is so reassuring, where God says, Now the dwelling of God is with men. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now the dwelling of God is with men. That he wants to come be with us. He wants to live with us. He wants us to live with He wants us to live with him. At that eternal home that Jesus Christ, our King, is preparing for us. Which brings us back to Acts 1. Today was not an exposition of Acts 1. If you want some of that, ask me and I'll try to find a link to something I've done in the past on this passage or someone else has. But I want to come back to that. Jesus Christ is prophet. He communicates, and therefore we listen and obey. Jesus Christ is priest. Therefore, we draw near. 
Jesus Christ is king. Now what? What is true because he's king? I'm back in Acts chapter 1. And in verse 11, it says, Men of Galilee, why, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These two men in white clothes were clearly angels. That, that symbolic imagery of white clothes is often found in the Bible when angels are present. And so you can picture these, uh, these 11 men, others standing around up there near Bethany on the Mount of Olives, looking up into the sky. I mean, this cloud of glory, not a rain cloud, a cloud of glory, Shekinah glory just took Jesus Christ up to heaven. In their presence, they were witnesses. And if you'd been there, you'd have been doing the same thing they did. <laughs> like, you know, just watching him go out of sight. And, and it's, is, he coming, is he coming back now? Should we, should we kind of wait here? And the angel said, why are you standing there looking into heaven? The same one who left is coming back the same way. He's going to come back someday in glory. He will come back in clouds of glory. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Are we on sabbatical? Look at verse 8. Before he went up to heaven, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have work to do. And because Jesus is king, and because he's prophet, and because he's priest, we do our work. We go forward in his name, in his power, to be his witnesses all around the world. He is our prophet. He communicates. And then we obey. He's our priest. He redeems us objectively and subjectively. And therefore we draw near. And he's king. He provides. He protects. And therefore we don't need to fear. We can go forward with the mission because he's king. You and I don't need to sit in fear. Afraid to move forward to be his witnesses at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, in our community, or around the world, even in difficult places like we saw in the video earlier today. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to think, what if it doesn't work? What if someone does something to me? King Jesus, King Jesus, has commissioned us to go forward. Did you ever notice how Matthew ends his gospel? Some of you have this memorized, maybe. And Jesus said to them, get it, ready? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is regal, my friends. That is kingly. That is sovereignty language here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This king that has commissioned us is with us always to the end of the age. And therefore, we make disciples. That, my friends, makes all the difference, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is not on sabbatical. The ascended Christ right now is serving in heaven, is our very intentional, very active prophet, priest, and king. And you and I live now 
as individual Christians, as families, and as a local church under his leadership. We can trust him. We can serve him. Let's pray.